This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alison Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be hearing about whether Scotland, why Scotland can't repair its own wind turbines, whether politicians are telling fibs to the oil and gas industry, and learning a bit more about the big plants in Namibia, the world's new oil and gas hotspot. I'm joined by my two colleagues, Ed Reid and Andrew Dykes. And how are you both doing? You've both been conferencing uh, pretty hard this week. It's been very much conference a go go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a had a, had a, a visit into the bright lights. Um, went to Pareto's nineteenth uh, uh, EMP conference. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, there was a lot of uh, rapid fire talk. And I was uh, I was coast to coast this week. I was in the port of Leith on Tuesday, and then in the uh, fine city of Glasgow on Thursday for both for some offshore wind chat which we can get onto in a bit but yeah we've been out and about we've been doing we've been on the beat it's been an exciting week <laughs> just hustling just hustling H- hustling and reporting uh, fantastic okay well uh, let's I'm, I'm very keen to hear more about the, the hustling and the central belt and the, the offshore wind stuff but let's kick off with ed um ed there's been uh, even more moves uh, in the last week with uh, namibia the orange basin and this this kind of burgeoning hotspot for the oil and gas industry. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's been an extraordinary sort of ascent. I mean, I think um, you know, considering it's it's only been sort of uh, you know just sort of a, a couple of years, uh, but yeah, you know, the the kind of the the, the big numbers keep on coming. So um, so essentially, Shell and Total both have got sort of big fines in in the, in the area. Uh, quite how big is 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 a matter of some uh, discussion. Um, but we're also sort of seeing. Uh, um, you know, plans for them to explore more. So Total is is keeping two rigs very busy. Shell is letting its rig go, but is uh, is is planning to shoot some uh, some some more three D seismic. Um, but also there are plans afoot around. So Chevron's in the area. I think it's got a, a, a potentially uh, able to start drilling in October. Uh, Woodside is in the area. Um, BW Energy is a sort of a smaller player, but it has its own sort of exploration hopes around uh, around a sort of a, a small gas discovery. So yeah, it's it, it's all kind of coming thick and fast, um, as you can imagine. Uh, there's a lot of lot of lot of interest, and in fact, you know, when I was at this conference uh, this week, um, Africa Oil was there. Um, and they are involved in um, so they've got a stake in a company called Impact, which has a stake in uh, in, in in Total's big Venus discovery. Um, so Total uh, struck a deal earlier this year to essentially carry uh, carry Impact through to First Oil, provide it a loan, uh, which will then be repaid. And 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 so Africa Oil's uh, new CEO uh, set out some of his thoughts around it uh, at this conference. And said that um, they would only take them about three years. He thought to pay back the loan, and then that they would be producing. They would have this sort of ten percent stake in this enormous kind of world class uh, oil field. I mean, numbers are sort of you know obviously very much kind of up in the air. Two billion barrels is is, is one number that's been sort of circulating, and there are more. There's more to be found. So uh, part of the reason that he uh, that that uh, Mr. Tucker said that he was keen to stay in. This particular area was that uh, the the discoveries have so far been in I think the northern area, and Total is in the process of shooting seismic in the south, uh, and he felt very strongly that uh, there would be more discoveries to be found in the south. Further south, um, Africa Oil also has a block um, in South Africa, 
also in the Orange Basin. Uh, South Africa is a bit more of a tricky place to be uh, participating in this sort of thing. I mean, there have been a, a number of protests around from sort of civil society around shooting seismic, around sort of development plans. Um, but Africa Oil felt pretty positive about its plans. It's trying to farm out a, a stake in that in that block. Potentially, uh, you know, uh, aiming to, to to kind of seal that deal, possibly in the near 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 term, and then and then maybe move into sort of drilling next year, perhaps. So, again, he would be looking at a carry for that. So essentially, he was saying that um, the, the these kind of big finds in the Orange Basin would be sufficient to. Uh, bring in industry um, interest, uh, carry his company, and he would then essentially, he said, he would get to about mid-year. There would be no more capex requirements from the company. Um, they would have cash flow coming in from some big uh, fields in Nigeria, and then sort of setting the stage for further M and A. So it really felt that uh, you know the Orange Basin is kind of you know really living up to its promise, and and obviously putting uh, Africa Oil in an enviable position. And and the conference more. More broadly, I mean, what's what's the sort of mood like at the moment? Because it felt a few years ago there was a little bit of a just, you know, it felt frontierian. It felt like you had to know exactly what you were doing, and there was a lot of, you're running into a lot of problems if you wanted to get stuff like this off the ground. Now it feels like there's this exploration kind of rush, a lot of good, big finds. I mean, is that reflected in the mood at the the event? Yeah, yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think look, we, I think we we um, you know, ten years ago there was a point when you know, sort of small companies would kind of go out and drill these deep water wells themselves. And I think that's 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 not happening now. Like, and I don't think that's ever probably going to happen again, right? I mean, obviously the kind of you know the day rates for drill ships and that sort of thing, and you know, sort of risking risking a company essentially on a sort of a single throw of the dice that feels unlikely. But it did feel that you know that there was um, a lot of interest and a lot of appetite. I, I mean, I think you know it's quite selective, so I think you know not everywhere is going to sort of find that sort of same exploration uh, opportunity. But it did feel that you know the you know kind of whisper the uh, whisper the words orange basin uh, and 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 suddenly you know a lot of lot of lot of ears would perk up so yeah it it does feel that you know that 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 is a is a really significant change and and obviously it's only been sort of a you know really kind of a couple of years since we've since we started down this path so it's been an extraordinary program okay I've got a couple of questions for you Ed uh, you mentioned it's only been a kind of a few years now that things have been going in Namibia firstly I mean how much extra kind of exploration blockage is available slash untapped? I mean, can we expect another kind of wave in, in years to come? And the second one is, why is it called the Orange Basin? <laughs> um, so in terms of Namibia's opportunities, I mean, I think, look, they've got, I think, so they've got four, essentially four offshore uh, basins. Um, and, and and so, the, you know, the Orange Basin is the, is, the, is the most southern one that's kind of on the border with, it's sort of split between Namibia and, and South Africa. So I think that's, um, you know, obviously, you know, Namibia would be keen to uh, attract sort of that same, same level of interest in these other three basins. Um, I think, you know, there have been a number of wells drilled offshore, I think it, I think the uh, the Petroleum Commission has said this week that 37 dry wells have been drilled offshore, uh, and you know, you know in, in in sort of the, the in the path of history. So this is quite a sort of a obviously you know they're all sort of uh, failures until you reach a success. Can they can they repeat uh, the Orange Basin elsewhere? I think the Namibians would be keen to, but I don't know quite whether they've made that case to uh, to industry. And I believe it's uh, the Orange Basin because it's, is it the Orange River? Oh. Um, I think, I suspect there's a sort of an Afrikaans 
um, sort of uh, orange link. I, I don't know. I'm speculating. If 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 listeners are out there uh, and would like to uh, correct me, please uh, please write in. <laughs> Absolutely, I would. I would love to. If if only for me. If only for Alistair to to find out why it's called Orange Base, and I'm sure I could Google it and find out the answer, but uh, yeah, intriguing. Okay, well, it sounds like there's still plenty to be discussing, and I'm sure there'll be more to come uh, from Namibia and the Orange Basin, so we will park that there for now, and next up we'll be looking over at the North Sea and some, well, some issues with some turbines after this. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Andrew, so last week we had news of the High Wind Scotland turbines going across the Norway for repair. Uh, maybe to bring us up to speed of what's been said around that recently at the conference you were at and otherwise. Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll set the scene a little bit this week, which obviously offshore wind very much on the agenda. I was in Leith on Tuesday where Scottish Renewables were running uh, tours at the port of Leith with fourth ports. Uh, so they're, uh, I think, I don't know, two thirds, three quarters through their uh, 50 million pound development program, which is extending a new berth and creating their offshore renewables hub there. So it's already, Leith is uh, Scotland's largest enclosed deep water port. This project is going to add a new uh, deep water quayside and 175 acres of marshalling space, um, which they kind of feel is going to be absolutely essential. I think last year, uh, their director of energy, David Webster, said they'd solved the uh, Scotland port problem. (laughs) (laughs) Whether that's true, we'll we'll kind of get onto in a minute. Um, But certainly, it's a really impressive site. It's really exciting. And, you know, as uh, someone looking looking down at least... most days from uh, my perch in Edinburgh, it's, it's nice to see something exciting like that taking shape in the, in the capital city. Um, it's also going to be the site of BP and ENBW's um, Morven wind project. So they've already uh, I think made a small investment, I think seven-figure investment in the port. And uh, they'll be using that when they build out Morven later uh, in the decade. So there's been a bit of uh, progress since uh, last year. As uh, David told me, it was you know all happening, but a lot of it is invisible in that it is in the sea. Mm. <laughs> uh, but he uh, he elaborated on some more of the, the plans uh, that Fourth Ports have for it, which is a, and a new thing that I hadn't seen, which is this plan to use uh, Burnt Island, so the the small um, port town across the Fourth, I think four nautical miles and pretty much in a straight line across the Fourth in Fife, um, to kind of expand on this floating wind blueprint. So under their kind of vision for it, you would have these uh, floating wind foundations could be towed in into the fourth, stored on probably the the Edinburgh side, uh, marshaled together with some components and then towed directly across the the Firth to this new commissioning facility they would hope to build at Burnt Island uh, next to the former uh, Bifab site. So some kind of good brownfield regeneration, but also some really exciting new infrastructure. There's uh, plans for this kind of T-shaped berth that would kind of go out into the, the fourth and then crews could kind of walk straight out from uh, the the port, 
climb onto these uh, floating turbines and do all the commissioning work where you need it to kind of cam. It's like all the, the hookup, all the uh, wiring, I suppose, systems, checks and everything before they're towed out to sea. Um, but you have this production line then where you have all the components marshaled in Leith, stuff's put together, towed across the fourth and then towed out in this, yeah, kind of assembly line. Um, so he reckons that if they do it, um, they could probably get it to three days per unit. So, so six days to do two turbines at a time. And he's basically saying that kind of level of throughput is what you're going to need to, to um, realize some of this floating and wind ambitions, particularly in the later Scotland projects, and the bulk of which are all floating. So he, he kind of tipped an investment figure, again, very, very vague figure, but kind of in excess of 100 million to, to develop this, already 50 million going into Leith. So big money, really exciting projects. Um, it's currently in the front-end engineering design stage, um, and there's a bit more studying and stuff to do before they get through to consenting. Um, but for me, that was kind of the main takeaway of this, this visit on Tuesday, some, some quite exciting stuff. Um, that builds nicely into Scottish Renewables Conference the next day. Um, it was opened by the First Minister. The first day was kind of themed uh, broadly around the supply chain. Uh, but Hamza Youssef announced uh, that the three initial projects have been selected for the second stage of this uh, government-backed strategic investment model. Um, so the, the SIM was announced, I think, all energy last year. Um, but the idea is to basically kind of pool all the risk and the resource for some of the, the most important strategic projects to get offshore wind going in Scotland, um, again, particularly floating. So I think it's a bit of manufacturing and a lot into ports. Um, but yeah, a lot of money being thrown around for that. Three projects have been chosen. I think uh, there was a lot of whispers around the conference as to what they would be. I think a couple of people knew and weren't telling. Obviously, they're not allowed, but... Uh, they were all being badgered, I think, in the coffee breaks as to whether they could share anything. Mm. Um, but we will be have some official announcements on those in, in late February. Uh, I showed up on Thursday for this more policy-focused day. And uh, this kind of set the scene, I suppose, as to why this is so important. And, and you mentioned earlier about high wind. So last week, we heard that uh, the Equinor uh, High Wind Scotland project, I think, with the world's first floating wind farm, 30 megawatts, five turbines, uh, was going to be towed back to Norway for some serious maintenance. Um, Obviously, it was initially integrated in Norway, and that's, I think, where Equinor built them and, and towed them across, if I believe, 2017. So they have been out there for some time, um, and it's obviously understandable that they would need maintenance, but it has not gone down very well with <laughs> the, uh, the industry that it's being towed back to Norway rather than a couple of miles in the opposite direction to a port on the east coast of Scotland. Um, so that it, it came up in the first panel session that I was in. Um, Scottish Enterprises head of low carbon energy, David Rennie, said that he'd read the headlines and it given him a shiver, <laughs> um, and basically saying that you know we have to get to a position where this this doesn't happen or at least happens less often. Uh, and he pointed to um, this new funding that's also coming from the UK government called FLOMIS. So that's the Floating Offshore Wind Manufacturing Investment Scheme. A lot of acronyms going around, I'm sorry. But a, lo a lot of money is forthcoming for this. But we are still at this point where key infrastructure that, you know, we're claiming to be leading the world on some of these floating projects. And we certainly are on the getting them done. But looking after them, uh, there's still a bit of a way to go. And ports are going to be so crucial to that. So it was really exciting to see the stuff at Leith but certainly a bit more work to be done and hopefully a bit more updates coming through on these sort of strategic investments from government. It's not a great look, is it? Um, with with turbines constantly having to go to either um, Rotterdam or indeed parts of Norway for repair when everyone's kind of claiming that we're going to be a leader. I, I just I, I can't help but draw towards uh, Paul O'Brien's comments on LinkedIn here. Uh, where to start with this one? Um, Highwind Scotland uses floating spar tech. Basically, uh, if, if I'm reading him correctly, I'd like to believe I am. This is a you know a, a pilot technology um, 
there aren't any ports in Scotland designed to service it, uh, and it's not a technology that's being used uh, or considered for future floating wind developments. Uh, or is is the industry making too much of this? Perhaps, Andrew. Um, uh, you know, are, are we going to be able to get things in a, in a much more healthy place once floating wind comes through in a material um, fashion? I really hope so. I mean, I think if look, I think if this was in isolation, we could kind of cut the industry a lot more slack. Um, but I think the fact that, as much as it is a pilot, you know, we have a lot of capable uh, port infrastructure already. I would have thought we have certainly. Um, space in, in the likes of the Cromarty Firth and, and places like that to kind of park them if that's what's needed. I, I Obviously, I'm not an engineer. I don't know the extent. They also, Econor has been kind of quite tight-lipped as to what the extent of the maintenance is, other than saying it is heavy maintenance. Um, so there'll probably be a little bit more um, to be revealed on that and, and what it is that's, that's uh, actually needing worked on. Obviously, it's all of them. So whether it, it could be a turbine issue, um, we, we're not kind of entirely sure at this stage. Um, but they will be out of action for, for a couple of months. Yeah, if, if if it was just them, I would say, you know, okay, we can cut cut the industry some slack. But the fact that Kincardine, as you've mentioned, is going to Rotterdam, the fact that the industry has been saying for years, Tim Pick especially, has has made a, a lot about our lack of port infrastructure, but but also the fact that we've not kind of gotten ahead with this. Um, so Lars uh, Meckenstock, who's uh, the SVP for Commercial Wind at Mazdar, who owns a, a stake in the Highwind project, he, he again was keeping tight lipped as to any of the technical details, but he did say, you know, it kind of points to this wider chicken egg problem where we've we've built a lot of this infrastructure, but we haven't necessarily uh, lined that all up and made that integrated with the the supply chain that makes the most sense nearby. Now it's not a it's not out of the realms of uh, possibility, obviously, and it's it's not an uncommon thing to tow these kinds of structures across the North Sea to the place that makes the most sense. But obviously, when you have facilities that you would think would be able to kind of deal with this a fraction of the distance away from an emissions point of view and from the local supply chain point of view it yeah it's a, it's a lost opportunity as david rennie also described it uh, and i think hopefully the funding that we see will start to curb some of those lost opportunities and, and maybe line up a bit more uh tangible progress in future i think okay uh, thanks andrew well from one challenge to the next next up we'll be discussing some of the political uh, discourse between the industry and the Scottish First Minister. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, so a report this week emerged that Ithaca Energy's then CEO, he's now stood back, uh, Alan Bruce, had written to First Minister Hamza Youssef uh, around October time, early October, uh, over what he described as extremely disappointing comments about the Rosebank oil field. For those sitting under a rock, Rosebank, West of Shetland Project, largest untapped field in UK waters, it has become something of a climate campaigner battleground. You might have heard us talk about this on the podcast once or twice uh, in the past. But anyway, 
the, the field was approved in September time. That's when Ithaca and the majority owner slash operator uh, Equinor announced an FID. And following that, Hamza Yusuf said, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, he said it's the wrong decision. He said, this is the wrong decision. I have expressed concerns about this going ahead for some time. We don't think the tap should be turned off tomorrow. Neither can the Northeast have unlimited oil and gas extraction. This is another demonstration of the UK government rolling back on its own climate ambitions. So uh, a lot of people um, on our LinkedIn uh, and our social medias have kind of agreed with Ithaca here, I think, taking taking their side, perhaps unsurprisingly. Uh, this was first first reported by the, the right-wing newspaper, the Scottish Daily Express. Um, leaving their political leanings aside, it is good FOI work, which is how this letter was acquired, the Freedom of Information request, uh, which we've since seen. Um, so Mr. Bruce, in his letter, Alan Bruce said, among other things, that these comments from Hamza Youssef were basically not aligned with what they discussed when they met uh, some weeks earlier. To read a, a, an excerpt, I enjoyed the open exchange of views, and I thought we left with a common understanding from energy companies, supply chain, and investors that the position of the Scottish government, and indeed your comments, of wide-ranging influence despite jurisdiction of over oil and gas licensing and developments sitting in Westminster. I was therefore extremely disappointed by your response to the news that the Rosebank development has been approved. So he went on to say this is, you know, good news for the whole of Scotland, not just the Northeast. Uh, talks a bit about it's disappointing that no First Minister has talked about the, the jobs benefit here. I think uh, off the top of my head, the numbers are something like 400 through the life of the field, something in the region of 1600, I think, in the kind of construction uh, and hookup phases. And another point that some issue is taken, the unlimited extraction line, you know, said before, that's not what we're doing. We've explained many times to ministers and officials, it's disappointing to hear that language being used. So I think I think what is safe to say here, um, you know, while I would stop short of saying there's fibbing or lying overtly going on, clearly where Ithaca has landed, they felt that there was an understanding reached, which not not consistent with Hamza Yusuf's uh, comments. Uh, which he said were not aligned with what had been said behind uh, what seems to have been behind closed doors and, and a meeting with industry. Uh, there's a couple of things for me here. You know, it reminded me to to an extent. Um, you know, last year I think it was Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar was at an OAUK evening event. I was at. It was it was themed on DNI, as I recall. He was engaging. He seemed pretty cool with it all. Uh, and no sooner had that stopped, a, a Scottish Labour press release came in. Sarwar holds industry to account. Uh, and other firms, you know, spoken to, you know, when it comes to the general election, I think there's there's a hope that just because politicians like Labour say one thing publicly, it's not necessarily what they will do, and the reality will will sink in. But but nonetheless, you know, there's a lot of it seems there's political gamesmanship going on here, um, playing to a base going into a general election. And I think this kind of exemplifies the risk going into a, a general election year of you know just just in how into the firing line things like this are going to be. Um, and, and yeah, there are economic um, Im imperatives to, to consider that perhaps aren't getting the oxygen because it's playing to a, a voter base. Anyway, I've spoken for long enough. What do you guys make of that hearing, you know, discussions and meetings have been going on. One thing's apparently been said, but in terms of what's going on in the public sphere, it's it's a different matter. I mean, I, I think the, I think a lot of this could be summed up in the phrase, that's politics, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're, I think you're totally right that I think 
I too would be aggrieved if I'd had a meeting with someone and, and felt that we had reached a sort of common understanding that at least, you know, <laughs> if not open hostility, then we'd reached an accord around what we were doing and then to find some public comments later. But I, I do think, you know, I think the Scottish government's uh, approach towards energy policy is to kind of get as much as they can out of it from a political uh, political leverage, I suppose, or, or certainly, yeah, as you say, Alistair, to kind of work up your your own voter base in the sense that so much of this is devolved and as we think we've we've discussed before certainly i know i've said before you know you they can kind of say whatever they like but at the end of the day they don't have control over a lot of this which allows them to kind of target things that they want to target and get off the hook when they need to for a lot of things as well can, can i but can i can i pick up that though because the, the in the letter he's 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 kind of saying very explicitly here for investors for the supply chain for the energy companies the Scottish government's comments, your comments, First Minister, have wide-ranging influence, despite that jurisdiction sitting in Westminster. He's basically saying, if you're going to say things like this, it's going to hamper, I, I'm paraphrasing, but I think is what he's saying, it's going to hamper investment confidence and 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 it will you know, impact projects. I mean, it, as you say, Andrew, it's, it doesn't sit with them in terms of the jurisdiction, but is that fair to say that, you know, if if, if Hamza Yusuf makes these kind of comments, it will impact investment and, and therefore the supply chain and, and jobs and things of that nature? I think it probably is. But I mean, you, you've still got a Westminster government that's, you know, windfall tax has been an, a very unpopular and very well covered line over the last 18 months as well. And, you know, the same kind of approach was taken there. So I think I'm sure the industry is always going to go out to bat and, and for itself and say, you know, any any negative comments are going to hurt our investors are going to hurt what we would do with the supply chain the realities of what that means you know I'm, i don't think uh the companies that are lined up to uh for procurement for some of these projects are going to walk away based on first minister's comments you know in reaction to something that they now know is happening but certainly there's there's the see you know the wider environment and whether you're creating a hostile environment of course um, and I, you know, I'm sure on a personal level, I would be agreed, but I think you, you've, you've got to see the bigger game here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as a, as a slight counter to your, uh, kind of question around sort of, you know, does it, does it undermine the business case? So I, at this conference that I was at, uh, this week in London, uh, the, uh, Ithaca's new, well, interim CEO, former sort of CFO, Ian Lewis was speaking. Um, and he was asked a question about Cambo, because obviously that's, I suppose, kind of the next kind of, you know, big kind of uh, FID hurdle, right? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm relying on you guys to tell me when I go wrong, if I've got the wrong end of the stick. No, but, you're, you're, you're spot on. Yeah, spot on. Um, and, and, and so he was kind of asked a question about, about, about Cambo. And he said, um, he's, uh, you know, he, he, he said that it was disappointing there's opposition from some political quarters. But he said Rosebank was a good example that a field that was controversial and that, you know, that there were the, there were these oppositions to uh, would still make progress. And, and, and he said, you know, ultimately political and regulatory processes will work through to get to the right answer. So it, it felt like to me, he's kind of obviously he's talking a good, good game because he's got to try and sell sort of some amount of Cambo, doesn't he, to, to kind of move it to FID. But he, it, it didn't feel like he was saying uh, Hamza Youssef has, uh, has has fatally undermined uh, the investment case in the North Sea. Mm. Yeah, it seems like there's a line here, isn't there, to be to be to be drawn. I mean, uh, and what side do you you stand on it? I mean, to what extent does Ithaca? Maybe this is Alan Bruce's. We, to be fair, Ithaca never confirmed it was Alan Bruce's letter. This is just the the understanding. Um, but you know, is that is that his personal views versus? The wider Ithaca views, you know, in terms of the the importance of the Scottish uh, First Minister um, and his and his his role, I suppose, in supporting the industry. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I dare say we're going to see more of that uh, kind of gamesmanship and politicking, of course, as we as we lead into this general election year. But I think for now, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. It's just left for me to th- say thank you to my colleagues Ed and Andrew for joining me, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.